welcome to Four Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. I'm your host, Dave Polis, and today we're going to be exploring a slightly different type of niche strategy that smaller advisory firms can use to grow their practice and build their client base. Our special guest today is Marcy Baer of Baer Financial Planning, who has focused her practice to serve a specific clientele in a certain way. This double service strategy seems to be paying off handsomely for Marcy and her associates, who are based in San Diego. Marcy Baer, president and founder of Baer Financial Planning and vice president with the Wealth Consulting Group, is a native of San Diego and a certified financial planner. With over 28 years of experience working with the LGBT executives, female CEOs and attorneys, as well as successful business owners to help them work towards their goals and pursue what's important to them. Marcy's often called upon to speak to corporations and associations on a variety of financial and retirement planning subjects. She's also well-respected in the San Diego community and has been recognized by many organizations throughout the years for her community involvement and business success. Marcy is a CFP and holds securities registrations series 6, 7, 22, and 63. And those registrations are held through LPL Financial and Health, Life, and Disability Insurance Licenses. Marcy, welcome to the program. Thanks for accommodating the uh, time zone difference coming to us from sunny San Diego. Thank you, Dave. It's great to be with you. Uh, Marcy, you've developed a planning practice around some issues you're passionate about. And we've talked about that on other uh, programs here in a couple of different ways. How did you come to be a CFP in the first place? I suspect there's a good story there. A little bit of a story, yeah. I grew up actually with my dad in the uh, similar industry. He was with New York Life for over 25 years. And then he moved over to EF Hutton. And so I got a good experience of seeing him interact with so many different clients throughout those years, uh, growing up, going to his office, uh, delivering life insurance policies with him and and so on and so forth. So I got a, a good understanding of how to treat clients really well. He had a lot of clients that we mutually knew in, within the family and just uh, community circles. So I got to see him interact um, with regards to that. Fast forward, I um, went to college, didn't want to necessarily be in the insurance business, um, but got a job with a small kind of insurance-based broker dealer here in San Diego. It was the advisors group. And uh, they needed a a computer type person, but then also one of the financial planners needed a administrative assistant. So I actually was looking for a paraplanner, financial paraplanner position. This was like uh, late 80s, early 90s, and really those positions didn't exist back then. So it was uh, administrative assistant is what I did, but took on a lot of the roles of helping this uh, CFP services clients. So that gave me a really good chance of seeing a a broader picture of financial planning than what I had seen originally through my dad's practice and the focus on life insurance. So you really, though you had a good grounding in in the client uh, agent dynamic, you really did have to start at the bottom and you really did learn this all from the ground up. I I did. And uh, so in 1992 is when um, I decided to start getting my licensing and, and started my own practice. I was 25. And so I started uh, with kind of a base of health insurance clients and investment clients, financial planning, um, kind of did the, the full service financial planning back then and still do. So that's still our core. Uh, so that was 1992. And then 1999 is when I got my CFP designation. And 
uh, was able to then just continue to grow the practice. So you really started as a generalist and have moved towards this uh, a little later. Yeah, I would say, um, so we're still um, wear the CFP hat. And so we're still, I, I would say, like a generalist when it comes to financial planning, because we see clients in all phases of their lives and stages and create a comprehensive financial plan for them. Where we specialize in is like the niche of who we work with, as well as some of our investment philosophies, which we'll get into later about the sustainable, responsible or ESG investing. Now, that seems like a lot to take in for one person. Now, you have a business partner, Victor Orozco, who came to you initially in a very unusual way, if I remember, uh, and has been quite successful. Can you tell us a little bit about Victor? Yep. He has been amazing. He was the uh, intern that never left. <laughs> so uh, San Diego State has an amazing financial planning program and financial services program. And I was able to get uh, Victor as a, a college intern from San Diego State. He's been with me now uh, almost 16 years. So he started as a, you know, just a part-time assistant helping me with uh, basic administrative duties. And then uh, we kind of uh, clicked. He, he came on longer, ended up um, getting his licenses and has been with me ever since. So he's grown uh, up a lot, went through the ranks of uh, understanding the business. And now he's a managing partner. He's a, you know, full-fledged partner within the firm. Uh, he's managing partner and operations director for Bear Financial Planning, and he also manages and, and runs our uh, ESG, we call it our high-impact portfolio, which is our sustainable, responsible ESG portfolio. So he's, uh, I've, I've not only seen him grow professionally, but now um, you know, he's, he's married, he's got two babies, and so it's, it's just been wonderful to see him just mature as a, uh, a young man and, and a, an amazing business partner and business person. See, that's one of the advantages I'm seeing in, in all these practices for RIAs is that you really do see an entire lifespan full of growth and development and, and closeness and sharing and everything else with your clients. And it really is important to pick people you, you want to work with both professionally and as clients because they're going to be with you for a long time. Now, I mentioned that you developed your practice by focusing on two things rather than just one. Now, one is serving the LGBT community, and the other is your investment philosophy, which favors environmentally, socially, and governance-conscious companies. Let's talk a little bit about the client base first. How did you go about making the decision to meet that community's needs, and was it difficult to get started? Sure. I guess, you know, when you're opening a business, any kind of business, you, you're looking to what type of clients would be best for you. So for me, I wanted to look for uh, people that I would have something in common with. Uh, it, it is a long-term, I could see from the way my dad created his business, is that you do have long-term relationships with clients. And it's not just transactional. And so I wanted clients that I could be able to serve them for many, many years, as well as just really get along with them. And so... Uh, and also kind of a pool of uh, people, prospects where it, I wouldn't um, run out of, right? So if it's too narrow of a niche, then um, you, you would run out of that, that niche too quickly. And so for me, um, being part of the LGBT uh, plus community, it was natural that I would seek the community out. In San Diego, we had a very robust uh, chamber of commerce for the LGBT community and what was unique about our chamber is that it was about half was LGBT business owners 
and the other half were straight allies. So it was an amazing group of business owners where we could do a lot of networking and business with each other and support each other's businesses. So that's really how I got started with building my clientele. Almost 30 years later, I have some of the same clients that started with me back then. So that's been, you know, obviously very rewarding to be able to see them. They were, you know, perhaps in their thirties then, and now they're in their sixties and I've helped them go through um, starting up their business and just getting their retirement account set up and their very first like SEP IRA or, you know, IRA account set up. And now they're fast forward, they're, they're now retiring and we're now um, seeing the, the fruits of all that labor that we've been working on. You mentioned that the Chamber of Commerce back then was really half and half. Your client base, beyond the self-identified commonality, is rather diverse and cuts across all social, economic, and racial barriers, doesn't it? Does that add to the plexing, uh, planning complexity at all? Is it tougher to do it that way? Yeah, well, I would say because the LGBT community in general is a cross-section of, of America, right? So LGBT people come in every faith and, and race, religion, culture, and so that naturally gives us diversification there as well as uh, age of clients. So we've got, you know, we're continuously trying to tap into younger clients to get them started on a good financial path while at the same time working with the senior clients that are, are now retiring or in retirement. And so the, the challenges I would say have to do more with uh, just meeting them where they're at financially or emotionally, if they're ready to do the work with regards to financial planning. We've had many years of experience in working with the LGBT community and the the various financial planning challenges that just go along with the community of having the lack of uh, the ability, in this case, to to be married, legally married. Uh, That posed a lot of financial challenges or financial planning challenges, I would say, in trying to to just do financial planning work for the LGBT community uh, because of the the fractured nature in which we had uh, laws or protections for them, state planning wise, documents, again, tax wise. So things are coming into a little bit more of alignment now with with the passage of marriage equality, Um, but we still have unique situations that come up and not every client wants to get married just because they can now. Um, Doesn't mean that they want to or they should um, based on financial or other reasons. Now, other than marital status, are there are there other specific planning challenges that your clients face? Some areas where maybe CFPs listening in our audience might not have as much experience and may need a little a little clues to what those are. Yeah, I would say that um, the first step for the advisor is to really make their office a comfortable and welcoming environment, so that an LGBT um, client could feel comfortable sharing their full selves with them. We want our clients to come authentically and be open. That's the way we can do our best work as CFPs is we really have to understand the client, who they who they love, who they care about, who they're concerned about and what their hopes and dreams are. And we can't do that if they're if the walls are up. And so I would I would just encourage the advisors on the um that are listening is to really make sure that they've got open and welcoming language with regards to their website or their um, financial fact finder intake forms that you really have words that are more inclusive of saying, like say um, partner slash spouse, 
instead of husband and wife. Like don't put somebody in a box from the beginning and, and maybe off putting because they don't fit in that box. And so make it a welcoming environment so that an LGBT person could come to your office, feel comfortable and then open up with regards to, again, who, who they are so that you could do that planning. Because if you don't do that, then you can't get to the next step to even know what type of planning do we need to do with regards to um, estate documents or beneficiary designations or Social Security pension. All of those have to do with is the person married or not, legally married or not. If they're not legally married and they have someone in their life, how do you still protect that person? And so those will be the planning areas that that we would discover after we we know who the client is. But you've got to get them in there first and get them comfortable. Now, where would an advisor go to gain that kind of knowledge and insight from from such a diverse group and, and try and make that a welcoming environment? Is there a course or a website or somewhere they could do their homework to be more competent? Yeah. The, so the great thing is the CFP board has really started putting out a lot of uh, education around this area. There are some LGBT ambassadors within inside the CFP board. Uh, there's also SAGE, S-A-G-E. SAGE is a an organization, an LGBT advocacy group for seniors. They put on a lot of educational events. Uh, but then also a lot of the broker dealers and RIAs are doing some work in this space as well. So as you mentioned earlier, we are affiliated with LPL Financial and we have a pretty robust training program with inside of uh, LPL for advisors that are want to be allies to the LGBT community and learn more about the community, learn about how to reach out to the community, support the community just from a personal level, but then also from a financial planning and investment management uh, perspective, we help educate again with regards to taxes or investments or social security, whatever the planning opportunity uh, or challenge is. Now, if an advisor isn't necessarily from within the community, yeah, could they still potentially serve that community? And if so, in what capacity? How would you go about getting started with that? You mentioned an advocate or an ally. Yeah, and I, I would I would definitely encourage advisors to do that. If if only uh, CFPs or financial advisors only <laughs> did business and had clients of people that looked just like them, it, it, we wouldn't be serving enough people, right? And so there are not enough LGBT advisors. We're a, we're a rare breed. We're a rare breed that, you know, female CFPs. And then, then you narrow that niche even more to an LGBT uh, CFP. It's even narrower. And so I cannot possibly serve all of the LGBT clients that are out there. So we've got to have help. So we have to have help from allied advisors. And so I would encourage you to uh, meet with family, friends. It, no doubt there's people in your circle that's already in the LGBT community. So just reach out to those uh, people already in your community, whether it be on uh, social media or um, joining different groups or organizations in your area to just get to know more LGBT community and see what their needs and, and um, wants are. If you work with specifically the business community, there are national. There is a national uh, chamber of commerce, LGBT chamber of commerce. It's called uh, the National Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce. Uh, NGLCC is their website, National Gay Lesbian Chamber. That would be an excellent place to start to see if there is a chamber in your local city. 
And so if there is, that's a great way to, to reach out and start meeting business owners within inside the community, build alliances with CPAs and attorneys that work with the LGBT community. So as you start building out your network and as you start working with LGBT clients, you're going to want to be able to refer them to culturally competent in addition to their business needs to be competent, but culturally competent CPAs and attorneys that are also going to treat them with respect and dignity. And you can do that by building out this network. And then obviously you could um, perhaps have referrals go both ways, but you will at least have a network of professionals that would support your clients. So really it's, it's getting the empathy built up. It's getting the access. It's getting the understanding that's going to open the doors to, to these things. Correct. If an advisor really wants to stay within their existing niche, but they want to broaden their accessibility to include those in the LBGT community. Are there ways they can do that? Are there ways they can make it more welcoming? I think you touched on a little bit of this before, but if you can give us more detail. Yeah, but I would definitely say, you know, just uh, put some sort of language on your website. Now, most people, whenever we're doing any kind of business with someone, we go to their website, check them out, right? So same thing, a prospect's going to come to your website and check you out. You want to have something on there that speaks to the fact that you work with a wide range of clients, a diverse set of clients, and specifically put LGBT in there so that when they're doing either a search for your city and look for LGBT advisor, LGBT friendly advisor, you pop up. But then also if they just come across your website in some form or fashion, that there's something on there, whether it's a, it doesn't necessarily have to be a whole page dedicated to LGBT community, but you've got, you know, who we serve somewhere on there so that they would know at least from the beginning, okay, this, this is a safe place. And, uh, and then on your materials, like I said, you know, your fact finders or any kind of materials that you have, your questionnaires, have that be a little bit more open language with regards to spouse or partner instead of husband, wife, um, maybe preferred pronouns. That's important to know. Uh, but then just uh, making it a, a welcome environment. Now, a lot of offices due to coronavirus are shut down. We're doing a lot of things uh, virtually and uh, through video chats. And so you could, again, just articulate that in, a, in your introductory meeting of the type of people that you work with. So really, this is a positioning uh, exercise as well as an empathy exercise so that you can really not only be there, but you can tell them you're there. I think that's right. That's a, that's a key component to remember. And some advisors get a little squirmy thinking, oh, I might, you know, upset some of my other clients. I might have more conservative clients and they're not going to like that I'm working with the LGBT community. But what I would say is that you just let your, all your clients and uh, centers of influences know that you run and operate a diverse firm and diversity and inclusion is important to you. And with inclusion comes accepting all types of clients. And so you've chosen to accept, in addition to the other clients, you've chosen to accept LGBT community as clients. Pretty simple but profound message. We're up on a break. We're going to come back in a couple of minutes. When we come back, we're going to learn more about that ESG investment piece that you've got going, maybe some of Victor's work, and talk about how to spread the gospel about uh, environmental sustainability. We'll be right back. Are you an RIA or financial advisor looking to grow and scale your practice, but feel like you could use some help? 
feel like there are lots of growth options out there, but don't have time to research them and don't want to make an expensive mistake? Want to spend more time helping clients instead of time-consuming investment research, compliance checks, or transactional work? If you answered yes to any of these, Pinnacle Advisor Solutions has the answers you need. With a range of outsource options and financial planning support, Pinnacle has a solution that fits your needs, budget, and circumstances to help you scale up, grow your practice, or put a succession plan in place. For more information or to set up an appointment, call 201-919-4838. And we're back with Marcy Baer. Okay, so now we've explored your niche and how you built it and why. Let's address the other technique that you've used to sort of neck down your practice and, and focus and direct it in one way, the ESG investing piece. Is that a natural or preferred outgrowth of the clients you serve? Or can anybody really recommend an ESG type of investment and have clients be comfortable with it? Yeah, I, I, I definitely think it's it's totally fits within side of our niche of LGBT community being very discerning on where they spend their money and how they invest their money and what causes and companies they support. I was blessed that um, when I first started, my first uh, company and broker dealer was the advisors group who owned Calvert Group. So Calvert was one of the first ESG mutual funds um, in, uh, they were actually the first in, I believe it was back in like 1982 to oppose apartheid. And it's so ironic that, you know, all these years later, we're dealing with, you know, rights, white supremacy and social uh, injustice, you know, now it's 2020. But I got, you know, really indoctrinated back then when I first started my practice on understanding this social responsibility or conscious capitalism of how you could still make money, but at the same time earn a return and not negatively impact the environment or companies, employees. And, and so it was just a great concept that, that has stuck with me all of these years. Fast forward now, ESG as last couple of years really taken off. And, and as advisors, you probably know that you can't really turn, uh, open any publication or w watch a website or anything that doesn't have something about ESG in there. Can you take a minute to clarify just exactly what the earmarks of firms who operate the ESG model are? What, what encompasses that, that model? And so in the environmental side, what we're looking for is companies that have um, reduced carbon emissions. Maybe they're completely fossil fuel free, but they've at least reduced their carbon emissions. They're energy efficient, um, waste management programs. So just think about it as you at home. We're all, we're all at home a lot more these days. Um, and so being more efficient with turning off the lights and um, uh, turning off the TV when you leave the room, just being more energy efficient, we are personally that reduces our gas and electric bill. Well, on a larger scale, that does the same thing with a corporation. And so they're able to not only save money because they're more energy efficient, but then it also helps protect the planet for future generations. So that's on the environmental side. And then on the S part of the ESG is the social side. So we're, we're really looking at companies that have diversity and workplace policies that support their employees. So support their LGBT employees. This was a big deal um, a good handful of years ago. There were no employee benefits for an LGBT person's uh, partner, um, spouse or partner. Again, they couldn't get married, but they're, they now have are added uh, benefits for their domestic partners or their, um, their spouses. 
Um, so that's a big labor standards and supply chain management, just product safety. We're seeing how companies are treating their employees now during this coronavirus on, uh, are they keeping them on payroll? Or are they not? How are they supporting them uh, financially? Are they helping them make sure that they get fed and, and can make it through this transition until we get to the other side of this? Um, and their community, community impact. And then on the governance side, we're really looking at board diversity. Do we have women and minorities on board of directors? And what's the executive compensation compared to the rest of the employees? And where uh, this is significant is because when we take into account these factors, these ESG factors, in addition to just the financial due diligence that we do with companies, these ESG factors have really made a positive contribution to companies having less risk, they're more sustainable, and their performance has been better. And so there's multiple uh, studies and reports that show especially on the board diversity side, is when you start adding more diversity of women and um, minorities to the board of directors, those companies make better decisions, have a higher rate of return, less risk. And so as investment professionals, that's what we want is build portfolios that have less risk and good performance. And by the way, this totally aligns with a lot of your clients and so they're going to be all jazzed about it because not only is um, it hitting on their uh, financial needs, but it's tapping into their personal values. So it sounds like corporations that follow this, these ESG sort of guidelines or, or think this way or have a philosophy that aligns with this uh, are automatically going to be better business people just because of all the advantages it provides. This is obviously good for investors. Can you go down a list of, of companies and just by their performance pick them out? Well, there are, again, there are no um, perfect companies, right? And so, but it is, what does the company do if they have a misstep? Or um, if we come on challenging times like this with regards to the, um, you know, the coronavirus, a, a pandemic, right? Like there's some big things that have happened with, with Black Lives Matter and racial injustice. How are these companies handling these types of um, either financial or uh, social you know, uh, causes that will either align with your investor, your clients or not. And so um, there are amazing amount of mutual fund companies now. You can find the S&P 500 now has an ESG fund. And so these indexes are now able to get the uh, again, the S&P, the Standard & Poor's 500, you're now able to get an ESG version of that. And so you can see these, the top 500 companies, U.S. companies, and then what they've done is kind of lopped off, if you will, the DNF students when it comes to the environmental, social, and governance. So you've got higher quality companies. There are other mutual fund companies in this space that are a lot more strict, and they are only fossil fuel-free companies they're extremely um, narrow and strict on who they uh, invest in and what companies get through the screening process. Well, with the types of performance you're describing, the benefits to the underlying firm that make up those investments are huge. Do you think ESG is maybe the wave of the future for investing period, or is it just a new way to do business going forward in general? Well, we definitely see in Europe, it's just a matter of fact. It's just the way they've always done business there. They've taken into account these ESG factors. 
United States has been slow to react, even though we, we have funds going back to the, the 80s or um, maybe even a, the, the 70s, late 70s on this type of investing. It's only picked up speed in the last several years. I see it staying just because of not only the performance of it, it gives us another risk mitigation tool to be able to compare one company over another. And if they've got higher ESG score, to me, that is a, a more comfortable investment to make for that company over another. In addition, as clients are becoming a lot more discerning with regards to having their values be reflected in their investments, it's kind of hard to turn back the clock then. And so clients that are investing this way are not going to want to go back to an investment philosophy, which doesn't take this into account. Wow. That's, that's powerful stuff. If you're going down that road and are disinclined to go back, I, I think that says a lot. Um, your partners has a rather important position in all this, not only within your firm, but in the larger uh, holding company as well. Is he able to spread the gospel of ESG on a broader basis internally because he's, he is who he is and where he is? So what, uh, what Victor does for us is he manages what I call our high impact portfolios, our ESG portfolios for the wealth consulting group, in addition to Bear Financial Planning. And so what his responsibility is, is to really look at that whole universe of funds, which every month there's more and more funds coming on board. So it, it becomes uh, more challenging than it was when I first started. When I first started, there's only a handful of funds. And so it was easy to pick and build a portfolio. For him now, he's got a limited number of, of funds to choose from. So that's his job and responsibility is to choose the funds as well as the individual stocks we have in those portfolios that match our criteria. But in addition, uh, he and I both do a lot of education with inside of the Wealth Consulting Group and, and LPL on, and, and outside, frankly, um, just educating the whole community of advisors that this is a way to invest, teach them what ESG investing is, how to screen companies, how to screen mutual funds, how to build a portfolio, because we feel that the more advisors that understand this can offer it to their clients, because uh, frankly, clients are asking for it. And so if you're not asking, if you're not delivering that to them, they'll, they'll find an advisor that is. So you really feel that almost all advisors can be espousing the benefits of ESG to their investment clients, regardless of their own personal values. They should at least offer it to them, right? So as advisors, it's our job to know our clients, not only know them financially, but know them with uh, their you know hearts and, and minds desires. And so we need to match that up. And so uh, I think if you just open the conversation, you'll find that you, you might have more clients than you realize that are interested in this type of investing. That sounds like the best news possible. We're doing well by doing good. I like it. Um, Marcy, those are terrific insights. I know our listeners learned an awful lot. I want to thank you for joining us today and sharing all that with us. I've really enjoyed our discussion. I'm sure our audience are going to want to hear more about it from you in the future. We've been speaking with Marcy Baer of Baer Financial Planning in San Diego, California, about her double-sided niche and how it came to be the driving force in the growth of her firm. If you have questions about either ESG investing or serving the LBGT community as an advisor, just drop us a line here at 4advisors at pinnacleadvisory.com and we'll get you some answers. You're listening to 4 Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. I'm your host, Dave Polis, and until next time, thanks for listening. You're listening to 4 Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. 
This program is for educational purposes only, and the opinions expressed here by guests do not necessarily fully or accurately reflect the legal intent or nature of Pinnacle Advisor Solutions, Pinnacle Advisory Group, or its senior management. This program is not intended to give legal, investment, or financial planning advice, and opinions and statements made in this podcast should not be relied on as such.